Welcome to Harp Song, presented by Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions, bringing people together through collaboration, creativity, and community all through the arts. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm your host, Maureen Buscarino, and I hope to inspire you and to help you discover amazing music and artists from around the world. I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest. My guest this week on Harp Song is harpist and self-described harp detective, Nancy Harrell. We had such a fun time talking about the harp, inspiration, and bringing history to life. Nancy is the author of the definitive biography on 19th century Irish harp maker, John Egan. The book is entitled The Egan Irish Harps, Tradition, Patrons, and Players. She has taught early harp classes at the Boston Conservatory, Brandeis University, Benslow Music in England, and workshops at the Somerset Folk Harp Festival, the Historical Harp Society, and the American Harp Society. With academic degrees in harp performance and fine art, Nancy presents lecture demonstrations on rare harps in museum collections. Join me over on Patreon for an extended interview with Nancy as we talk about inspiring student harpists and her next book that she has in the works, along with other fun harp-related topics. I also have sign-ups starting for harp music for beginners and beyond. This will be a hybrid of pre-recorded online harp lessons where you can learn the basics of the harp, learn new tunes, Irish, Scottish, world music, get more comfortable with improvisation, learn how to improvise for meditation and basics of recording and editing and more. So you'll also have the opportunity for one-on-one and group classes. Enjoy this lovely chat with Nancy. Nancy, thank you so much for being here with me today on Harp Song. I can't wait to talk to you about every all your amazing projects that you're working on. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Maureen. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I, I do want to like just start with how did you become interested in the harp? Okay, well, when I was growing up, you know how people always ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I always said, I want to play the harp. I want to be a harpist when I grow up. You know, and I said that for years and years. I've never even seen a harp. (laughs) I didn't really even know what it was, basically. I mean, at some point I did go to the symphony and saw one. But that was just, you know, what I was going to be. And one day in my adult life, I asked my mom, you know, it occurred to me, you know, mom, where did I get this crazy idea? And at that point, I had become a harpist. Mm. And I said, where did it come from? And she said, oh, don't you know, it was your grandmother's idea. Oh, she put that idea into your head. It was her unfulfilled ambition for herself to play the harp. And I was just flooded with gratitude Hmm. uh, because I was always really close to her. 
And I used to spend a lot of time in the summer with her, just uh, the two of us. I used to play piano for her and she always supported my music. And then as time went on and I was getting into this John Egan book project and really into the history of the Irish harp, it dawned on me, my great grandmother was Mary Lindsay. She was the mother of my grandmother and she was Scots-Irish. Her family, the Lindsays, they came over to the States through the South from probably Ulster or Northern Ireland. And she must have planted a seed or an idea of the national symbol. We are part of the of immigrants in this new country, but we still love our homeland. We're part of the diaspora now. And my grandmother then, she played like a portative organ for all the locals. When she was growing up, they'd have hymn singing. So there was always music uh, way back in my family. My mother played piano. So it occurred to me, I think I'm really on my path doing this Irish harp research. Mm. It feels like a kind of a destiny for me, a, a kind of fulfillment of my ancestors, uh, my Scots-Irish ancestors who came over. Mm. Um, and it's a really beautiful thing. You know, it just feels like you can feel it when you are doing something that you feel like, yes, this is what I'm meant to be doing in my life. Mm. The harp, it's, it's just been everything to me the people I've met along the way. Um, it, it's been just so fulfilling to me on so many levels. Um, but the people I've come to know through the harp, including my husband. So when I was at university, one summer, I decided I was going to be an exchange student to England. And so I enrolled in this organization called Experiment in International Living. And I was placed with a family and I picked England as, as the country. Uh, at that time, there were actually the troubles going on in Ireland. Um, but anyway, uh, the family, my, my husband's family, uh, they had kept exchange students over the years. And my husband knew the organizer in Bristol. And he ran into the organizer one day and the organizer said, oh, we've got these Americans coming over. And there's one who's training to be a nurse and another one she's studying education. And we've got one who plays the harp. And Philip said to him, oh, we'll have her <laughs> because <laughs> our family is musical mm. and she'll fit right in. Oh. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. My husband picked me <laughs> because I play the harp. And so that summer, a little romance blossomed. And then, you know, I came back to the States and we wrote letters. Mm. A few years later, we married and I lived in England and Wales for 10 years after that. Oh, wow. Uh, which was really, I studied harp with the harpist of the BBC Welsh Symphony at one time. Just like you, it's taking me on, on just such a wild, great ride with the people I've met and the music I've learned. And it's just 
the harp community is so welcoming and and just so lovely and i'm just so grateful yeah. it's a family it's like the family that you don't have in like normal life <laughs> because you're you know your normal family you start talking about harps or what you're doing and their eyes just glaze over <laughs> <laughs> um and then so was your time in, in Wales, like really where you got in, inspired to, to learn more about early music? Um, actually, yes, it did happen in Wales in a kind of roundabout way. I love early music and I'm in several early music circles. Uh, I go to conferences. Uh, you know, I love the Historical Harp Society of Ireland and the U.S. one. And when we're at our festivals, there's a question we ask each other. So when was your conversion? <laughs> because really, you, you can kind of remember when you first heard early music and how it impacted you and how you could never turn back, never look back from this wonderful, um, delightful sound that you just never heard before. Mm. And mine, yes, it came in Wales. I, I ha it was in 1991, I was attending uh, the World Harp Festival, and I went to a concert in Llandaff Cathedral, you know, this beautiful medieval cathedral, and I heard a concert by Gothic Voices, this um, great vocal group, and they were accompanied by a medieval harp played by Christopher Page, who is really a well-known scholar in early music. And I had never heard such a thing. And he played this music that was, for well, for one thing, the tuning was perfect fourths and perfect fifths, mm. which now I know is Pythagorean tuning. It's a totally different sound. And he was accompanying the singers and I was just getting goosebumps and my endorphins popping at this sound that it was so different from what I was used to on the harp. As I mentioned, I was trained in pedal harp, big, lush arpeggios, glissandi, romantic music. And this got rid of all the fluffy stuff, got rid of all the waterfalls. <laughs> And even though I'm in Wales, where they do have beautiful waterfalls, <laughs> but um, it was just everything you needed was there. It was all pared down. You still had interest, uh, a sort of counterpoint, really, really interesting intellectual ideas coming across, beautiful melody, stories in this music coming across but it was with so much less. It was just perfection. Hmm. So I went back to where we were living in Texas at the time and opened up my folk harp journal. And there was Patricia John playing a harp that looked just like that. So I contacted her and ordered a harp from the same harp maker, George Higgs in England. And it turns out that Christopher Page was probably playing a Higgs harp hmm. because he ordered his harps from this wonderful man, George Higgs, who just turned 90, 91 in England. I'm still in touch with him. Oh, wow. um, 
still use that Higgs harp. I've been recording in quarantine. I've been recording videos with Capella Clausura, an ensemble I perform with here in Boston. And also I've done the Hildegard's Ordo Virtutum with this harp, with uh, Capella Clausura. I just love the sound. This story of my conversion then obviously led me to the Historical Harp Society, which Patricia had recommended. And this is another tribe, mm. as people talk about on your podcasts, and just haven't looked back. Let's get a feel for the medieval harp as we listen to a bit of Nancy and the Ensemble Musica Humana's performance of Hildegard's Ordo Virtutum from the 12th century. This is one of the workshops that Nancy will be presenting at the Somerset Folk Harp Festival this July. I love those people. I admire what they're doing and they're incredible colleagues. I feel so fortunate to know them, be in touch with them. We we share each other's successes and support each other. And, and it's a beautiful thing. I'd love to talk to you about your book. I know Javon Armstrong, who is president of the Historical Harp Society of Ireland, said that your book will be the standard reference work going forward on the work of the very talented 19th century Dublin harp builder, John Egan, who amongst much else, single-handedly invented the modern Irish harp. She said that you don't just set out the historical, cultural, and musical context, but painstakingly recreate Egan's world for the reader, which is such... Such wow! A beautiful yeah. compliment yes. from an equally beautiful soul, mm. Siobhan Armstrong. Mm. Um, I I've thanked her for that quote. It dawned on me after I started this journey with the Egan Harps that I probably was the person who could do this because I have this crazy love of all the different instruments, and I'm in all the different camps. I play pedal harp. I play Celtic harp. I'm in with the wire harp players, and I I understand that. I've um, I've had you know all these couple of decades working at the Museum of Fine Arts as a harp consultant there, soaking up all the the wisdom of the curator Darcy Coronan. There was just kind of all these strings to my bow of knowing the different instruments, being well placed to know how to talk about organology of instruments. And it just kind of fell onto me that I 
had to do this thing. And really, I came across this idea to do this from an Egan harp that ended up at the MFA one day. And the curator phoned me up and he said, hey, I've got this Irish harp in my, my office. Don't know what to do with it. Come in, take a look at it. And I'd never even seen an Egan harp before. And this was one of the John Egan portable Irish harps with diddles, um, these hand-operated ivory levers mm. on the inside of the pillar, uh, functioning kind of like pedals on a pedal harp. But to me, it was really one of the ugliest harps I'd ever seen. <laughs> I tell this story, you know, kind of funny <laughs> that I ended up devoting 15 years of my life <laughs> to this to finding out about this instrument. Hmm. But I was just curious. And as I looked closer to this harp, I saw these tiny gold shamrocks exquisitely painted on the soundboard. You know, really beautiful and neoclassical uh, swirling acanthus on the soundboard. And then I saw tiny etched lettering on the brass plate that says harp maker to King George IV. And I thought, wow, this was a royal harp maker. There's a story here. And I looked up Egan, the Grove Dictionary had an entry on him, and uh, but not very much. Years later, I rewrote the Grove entry. And I, but I'm really proud of that, mm. that, uh, that it was all research. And finding mistakes in that entry and being able to correct it really meant a lot to me. I'm definitely interested in the history of John Egan, why he built these harps, why the harp, you know, by the 1800s became obsolete or, or was almost obsolete, how his harp was different, and then its connection to the neo-Irish harp or the, you know, the more modern harp, if that's... Right, right. Well, that is it in a nutshell, what you just said. Okay. <laughs> that is the story. Um, but yes. You know, and that's really one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Because as I got into this story, I thought, you know, he did so much for harping in Ireland. In fact, in 1800, the Irish Clarshuck was essentially obsolete. It had fallen out of the culture due to the fact it was wire-strung, tuned in modes, and people wanted to play the new continental art music. They wanted to play opera themes and classical music. And to do that, you need to be able to play like the black notes on the keyboard, your sharps and flats. On a wire harp, it has fixed tuning you can't put levers on it. You have to retune. Uh, you can't play a passing accidental. But you can on a pedal harp. And that was what became popular in Ireland um, in the great houses in the late 1700s. They started importing these French pedal harps made in London by the Erard factory. So in about 1797, John Egan he was working as a Smith's apprentice and his, his career was all mapped out for him, right? You know, that was a pretty good career mm. for, for someone in those days. And 
he came across a French pedal harp, you know, one of these beautifully hand-painted soundboards, and he pulled together all the money he had, and he purchased it. He, he noticed the workings on the neck of the harp, and it had pedals, and he was a Smith's apprentice. He worked in the forge. He, he knew how to make those, the pedals and, uh, you know, the, the mechanism. Mm. He could figure out how to make the mechanism. So he actually made a pedal harp and it worked and he sold it. And then he had the income to start a business. So he end, ended his um, apprenticeship, took a leap of faith. And I like to say he forged a new career <laughs> in heart making. And he set himself up as a pedal harp maker in Ireland. But this was the time in the early 1800s, right after the Act of Union with Britain in 1801. So the political climate was such, there was rising nationalism in the country. The harp symbol has always been so much a part of this story. And when you think about it, all we have now is a French pedal harp being imported from London, from England. So there were these movements to revive the, the wire Klarschuk, of course, with the harp schools, the Belfast and Dublin harp schools. But John Egan foresaw the need for a new Irish harp, an intrinsically Irish looking instrument because at that time when you saw a larger instrument it was a french pedal harp so the most famous harp in ireland of course was the brian Boru harp in trinity college and it was just three feet high bowed pillar a high head and he copied that shape but he made it using the decorative style of the neoclassic style of this period. So made it really a beautiful instrument that would be decorative in your drawing room. And he strung it with gut strings, like a pedal harp, and he equipped it with mechanisms so that harpists could play not only traditional music, but the art music that they really wanted to play. And it was genius. It was genius innovation. So this portable Irish harp that became known as the Royal Portable Irish Harp later when he obtained the Royal Warrant from George IV, uh, which is another story, that became the template for the Irish harp. And it wasn't really until a hundred years later that harps started to be made again, Irish harps but they were not made in Ireland. They were made in London by George Morley. And he owned, I, this is what I tracked down. He owned an Egan harp. He was exhibiting it in some of these revival exhibitions around the turn of the 20th century. Wow. And he was restoring Egan harps too. I've seen one in the National Museum with Morley's name on it. He had one and he copied it for the Morley Irish Harp. In 1905, 
Melville Clark, the American maker, did a tour of Ireland and he purchased two our Egan harps and he copied them for his Clark Irish harp. And then Lyon and Healy took over the Clark business eventually. So basically the John Egan harp was this first modern Irish harp, I like to say. Let's take a listen to a bit of Carolyn's concerto from the CD Turlaco Carolyn, A Life in Song with the Ensemble Musica Humana. This recording is from 2013 and Nancy is performing on her John Egan harp circa 1819. have changed shape and size, but the concept, the organology, and that bowed pillar shape, that really came from John Egan. Hmm. And that's why I was like, no one's really written about this. This story needs to be preserved. When you are, when you're at the museum, how do you go about recreating these soundscapes of the past? Oh, I love that question. You know, Maureen, that is really the number one thing that excites me the most when I have an opportunity to create a soundscape of the past. That's just really what I'm about. Maybe that harks back to Siobhan's quote that, you know, after she wrote that, I thought, oh yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> I hadn't even realized it because I had kind of even thought about myself in one term as a harpist who, you know, I play concerts and gigs. And then my author part of me writing, researching, writing, publishing, and finding history, finding the stories of history. In fact, my mother named me after Nancy Drew. Oh. <laughs> and I see myself as the harp detective. Hmm. I love research finding these threads, finding why did this happen and this happen and this happen. But then ultimately, if I can bring it all together to create a soundscape of a past, which really requires three things, your space or your environment. Can you play, be lucky enough to play either in a museum gallery or an exhibition space, which I've been so fortunate to do, where you're surrounded by period paintings, artwork, the decorative arts, or even better, like when I played a concert in the Gothic Music Saloon in Burr Castle oh, wow. in England, in this 1821 music room hmm. playing on an 1821 harp. Wow. So that number two is the harp mm. to play either a surviving instrument 
you know, that's 200 years old, or a replica, a historical replica. And then number three is to play the music of the period on that instrument in that space. Mm. And uh, I heard it said like this uh, once years ago, a wonderful lecture uh, at Harvard by Christopher Hogwood. He says, you know, it's early music is just kind of like putting together a recipe. You want to recreate that recipe just in the best way you can mm. with the very best ingredients, the closest ingredients. You know, it matters where you bought that avocado, you know, or if you could get a tomato from Italy. <laughs> well, in, in our terms, in soundscape terms, you want to either get a harp, a historical harp, or the, your best replica uh, strung with a string tension tuned to that temperament of that period and playing, you want to research the music. When I play the music for Egan Harps, I had to go to the British Library in London and get the music. I went to the Library of Congress mm. and photocopied music uh, by John Egan, the harp maker's son. Can I say just a couple of things about the Burr Castle concert? Yeah. Um, this, this was a dream of mine um, to play this harp, mm. this fantastic harp, Lady Alicia's Portable Irish Harp by Egan, made in 1821 in this space. Mm. And I was invited by Lord and Lady Ross to uh, play a, a concert there in 2012. And I have to say, as the, as it became, the date came nearer, I was a little concerned about where I was going to stay and they were not concerned about it. And then really, as my trip was coming up, I asked them once again to recommend where I could stay. Oh, no bother. You will stay with us in the castle. Wow. And when I arrived and they're showing me to my room and I'm walking along these corridors with their ancestral paintings and sculptures, I could not breathe. <laughs> it was, it was like the Boston Museum only a hundred times more so. Mm. These are the family treasures I'm walking past mm. from walking with a descendant from the family yeah. and they took me to my room and I had a, a secret staircase from my bedroom to the library. Oh, wow. Adjoining the music salon. And I could just go down there to, to uh, practice. Mm. I was there for a few days. I arrived on a Friday and when you, have this dream of creating the soundscape of the past or whatever your passion is, it's not going to be easy necessarily. You have to do a lot of work to make your dream a reality. And also for me personally, you have to be a little bit crazy <laughs> and not really think through the obstacles that might come your way. 
I, I tend to be that way. I tend to get an idea of something I really, really want to do. And few things will stop me. And that that might be my gem of um, advice for new heart players or new researchers. If you get that idea and it and you get a kind of tingly feeling, go after it. Mm. Well, I, I arrived at Burr Castle on the Friday and I knew that the tension would be released on the strings after it was played to protect the instrument. But anyway, I, so I was there and realized Friday night, there was the Sunday afternoon concert, sold out concert. Mm. Uh, scholars from Trinity College were coming and I'm plucking the string. There's like no sound on the strings at all. Oh. I'm having to start from scratch to bring this oh. precious family heirloom up to pitch mm. by Sunday afternoon wow. to maybe not up to pitch. No, no, no. But near pitch. I mean, maybe approaching um, A equals 415. Mm. But a pitch uh, where it will sound like something wow. in the span of a couple of days really was wow. a pretty tense it is. <laughs> experience for me. <laughs> and so I would work on it for a little bit. I would be going up and down my secret staircase, you know, and chill out a bit. And I managed, I managed to do this and it was so gracious of uh, Lord and Lady Ross to host me. But anyway, the concert, to be in that room playing the music, the fading light, mm. we all felt something. We time traveled. I, I can't really even describe it. I knew I was on the right track when I asked Lady Ross, like the day before, does any of uh, Lady Alicia's music still arrive? She was the original owner of the harp. Mm. And you can read about her in my book. Uh, there's a section on her. And, uh, and oh, yes, let me show you her music. Wow. And of course, I had to plan the concert ahead of time and practice and everything. And so I'm, you know, I was really excited to open up the original music from, you know, the 1820s. Mm. And the first piece of music there was Sol Margin de un Rio. And it was a piece I was playing on, on the concert. Wow. <laughs> and I got this buzz, yes, I've, I've done my research, you know, I know what they played mm. on the harps from this period. And so to play a piece in that space, I'm, I'm getting a bit goosebumpy now thinking I, about yeah, it. I, um, we all felt something. It was kind of channeling what that may have been like. Mm. I had another soundscape experience like that. I, I realize now that some of these things I've done are not really things that many people get to do. And uh, I, I don't know why it, I've been the person lucky enough to do these things. But when I was writing the book uh, and, I, and I was working on this section on another 19th century harpist, and actually I'll be talking about these 
great harp players in Ireland at one of my workshops at Somerset mm. uh, this summer. Uh, this one, Francis Power Cobb, just a fabulous, fabulous, interesting person. She was really into gender equality towards the late 1800s. But of course, like all the ladies, the daughters from the great houses, she would learn the harp because all of these women, that was just part of the female accomplishments from this period. And she went to a finishing school in Brighton to learn the harp. And I'm reading about her and she comes back to her house, Newbridge House in Dublin, the fabulous Georgian house, one of the great houses of Ireland. And I had this idea, oh, if I could play Fanny's music hmm. on the Egan harp in that house. Wow. Because here I am as I'm writing the book, I'm channeling her, I'm imagining her sitting there, playing these pieces, looking at the paintings. She's just enjoying making music on her Egan harp in this period. So one thing led to another, um, and the the idea got traction, and the the curator at Newbridge came to my Dublin book launch two years ago, and I met him. We started planning something for Ireland's Heritage Week, and so I was able to give a talk on Francis Power at Newbridge House. And then we all went into one of these rooms, beautiful rooms in the house. I managed to borrow an Egan harp wow. for the <laughs> talk. <laughs> and I found out what music she had played, what books were still in the collection. Um, I learned the, piece, learned the pieces. Uh, of course, they would have played some of the bunting collections, even though they're written for keyboard, they're perfect on the Egan harps mm -hmm. with the chromaticism and the Alberti bass. They, they really fit the, the harps of this period. And to play that harp in that space um, with all the paintings around there, the people, it was incredible. And at the end of the concert, the people applauded and they just sat there in silence. Wow. That's never happened to me before. <laughs> and I understood it. You know, it wasn't really about me. It was, well, it was about me <clears throat> only in that I had done this really hard work. <laughs> Sure. I've taken a lot of chance, chances, really, to, to try and pull this thing together, this dream of mine, um, to be able to do this time travel, travel yeah. as we say. And it just makes it, makes history a little more real. And that's what I like to do. That's what I'm all about uh, as a biographer. I want to bring us a little bit closer to another period in time and the people who played harps and the, the people who made harps. Mm. Actually, I started my second book on James McFall. Like Egan, 
it's a similar story. It pulls in the nationalism of the period mm. and the harp symbol at these two sort of similar times, the turn of the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century, uh, which of course led to the Irish Free State um, in the early 1900s. Both harp makers, John Egan and James McFall, were both part of revival movements because they saw there needed to be a playable harp in the culture that has a harp as its national symbol. Why do you think the harp became so important as a symbol of Ireland? And What you're asking and what I wanted to know, well, why? And I think it's something that grew out of custom, that grew out of tradition. It wasn't just this kind of thing, well, one day, oh, let's just use a harp for our national symbol. When the wire-strung harp was played in Ireland, those harpers also gained notoriety on the continent. And their harps were just so different. You know, they were chunky. Uh, there's this wonderful illustration in Praetorius that shows uh, the chunky wire-strung harp next to a Gothic. The So in Ireland, there was this reputation for harp playing, this on uh, their unusual instrument. Their harpers were extremely skilled. And the role of the, the harp in the clan society, the harper uh, was very high status in the clan. So everybody just knew this about the harp. And then eventually, when, when we get into symbols on a flag or a coin, well, Ireland, well, it's the harp, isn't it? That's what, that's what they, the instrument they revere. That's, that's the sound that they have it's different from everywhere else. Fascinating. It, it really, really is. You were involved with the RT presentation about Sydney <sighs> Owenson, Lady Morgan. So how important was a Sydney Owenson, Lady Morgan, to the popularization of the Irish harp? I would clarify that uh, question to, to make it fit a little more neatly, okay. saying that she popularized Egan's yes. portable Irish harp. Um, she was friends with him. And really, the only information I've been able to uncover about Egan's early life is from Sidney Owenson's own memoir, which where she just talks about Egan, that you know he was training as a smith and saw this harp and decided to become a harp maker. That's from her. Hmm. What she did then in her life is really such a great story. And that's why she is one of these feminists. In my Zoom lecture I'm giving for, for uh, Somerset, she's so fascinating. She really had, at, from early times, she had to find a way to make a living. She was not like... Fanny Cobb, you know, she, she was not from one of the great houses. Her father, he was in the music hall 
you know, he was a he was a traveling musician, you know, a theater uh, actor. So what Sydney could see, she she started her life as a governess, and soon she could see, well, maybe maybe I could write. She started to see that there were a few women out there writing these these novels that were popular. Maybe I could write. And she's, she tried her hand at it and she wrote one and it took off. And then she wrote another one and she went to England to get a really good publisher in London, went all by herself across the Irish Sea to get a publisher and you know, it's quite an amazing story in those days. She does a deal with an English publisher, and from that those first earnings, she buys an Irish harp hmm. from Egan. Wow. And this book that she wrote, which is it's a really great book, and I recommend it still. It's called The Wild Irish Girl. Wild meaning uncivilized in those days, because that's how Ireland was portrayed in the English psyche. It was, Ireland was uncivilized. In the book, The Wild Irish Girl is a Gaelic princess who plays a harp, hmm. and her name is Glorvina. And this book was, was a bestseller, not just in Ireland, but especially in England. And Glorvina plays a harp, and so Sydney Owenson started getting invitations to go to London and play her Irish harp in the drawing rooms as evening entertainment. And she dressed as Glorvina. She took on the role of the character in her book and she wore a Glorvina cloak and a Glorvina brooch and wore a special Glorvina clasp in her hair. And these became, you know, she marketed these uh, items and Glorvina cloaks were all the rage. All the uh, ladies of distinction wanted to wear these, these items and look like the Glorvina character in the book. <laughs> so she's a master at marketing. Mm. Um, but her harp, people took notice of this portable Irish harp that she was playing. And then later she toured with her harp on the continent. And she, by that time, she was really a quite well-known author. And she even stayed with General Lafayette oh, wow. in France. And so she had connections with all the important people living in that community in France. And she went to Italy. She ended up writing travel books, took the harp with her wherever she went. Oh. And there's a wonderful quote that she writes to someone, tell Egan, everyone is going to be running after your heart soon. <laughs> Good PR for Egan. <laughs> yes. Oh, and she sounds works. incredible. And so there, there's, you write a lot about her in, in your book as well. Yes. Oh, good. yes. There's, there's a, a whole chapter on Sydney Owenson, who became Lady Morgan. I did want to talk to you about, um, I think it was in 2009, that an Egan harp was rescued from a... Yes, a, a dumpster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because I wanted to share with you and your listeners, you know, don't we get these harebrained ideas, you know, oh, I'm going to do such and such with the harp. And it's really hard. We start doing it. It's really hard. It's not exactly what we thought it was going to be. But we just have this idea and we don't know why. And my Egan research was exactly that. I was into it for years. And, you know, it was just always there in the background. At one point, I was harpist for tea at the Ritz-Carlton in Boston. And I was playing there uh, every day, five days a week, three hours a day on pedal harp. Mm. I was playing early music (laughs) as well, Celtic. But when I decided to give that up, it was like, I've got to do this book on Egan. And then, you know, I'd be distracted by concerts and all sorts of things. Every time I would be distracted and I would think, why am I doing this? This this is way harder than I thought it was ever going to be. Then something would come to me. Someone would email me, hey, I found an Egan Harp. I need to know something, you know, or a lecture opportunity would come to me because by that time I had started to write articles on Egan and I love to write. So this was one of those times I was really thinking, I was really dejected, you know, like, this book's never going to be published. It's so much work. Mm. And um, I'm in the Boston Biographers Group. We meet once a month. There are people in there who've been trying for 20 years to find a publisher. Wow. It's it's really not a done deal. You, you just write a book and it gets published. Sure. It doesn't happen that way. And I thought, you know, 20 years of my life, and nothing ever even come of this. I had to take that risk. But when that dumpster Egan was found, and I got an email from Julie Finch, the dumpster diver, she had been formerly, she was a prima ballerina. Oh, wow. Now that's got to be a cartoon of a ballerina (laughs) diving into a dumpster, (laughs) picking up a harp, right? (laughs) Anyway, she retrieved this instrument and went online and found me and we were in touch and I gave her information on uh, the various options on what to do you know don't touch anything Mm. don't try to clean it up which you know unfortunately was a little late Mm. for that advice but she very soon after that she sold the harp to Lorcan Otway who's an Irish singer in New York and he started generating some interest online for this for this instrument and giving interviews and one thing and another. And he was in touch with me and I was telling him just what he had. The thing that captured everybody's interest was to just find something valuable for free. So how much is it worth? It's an old harp, it's gotta be worth millions priceless, you know, (laughs) and, you know, the reality is, well, not really. As a harp historian and working in a museum, I really understand it's kind of the value is in the eye of of the purchaser or the beholder. These old harps, you know, they're maybe not playable. What do you want to do with it? Once you start restoring them, 
uh, they may lose value because it's not original mm. decoration on an instrument. You know, there are just so, sure, so sure. many variables to a historical harp. But anyway, Lorcan was really getting some traction with this story. And the next thing I knew, the phone line rang and it was a reporter from the New York Times. Mm. So I was interviewed by him and I was in the article. And then like a couple of days later, a columnist from the, the Irish Times in Dublin hmm. phoned me. This was pretty exciting yeah. for a harp historian <laughs> to be interviewed by the Irish Times in Dublin. Yeah. And so I emailed my friend who is a um, curator at the National Museum of Ireland. I had been over several times studying these harps and I actually assisted her with cataloging the Egan Harps in the collection there at the National Museum, which was a real honor to be able to do that. I emailed her and I said, you know, just in case you don't know about this, you know, it's coming out in the Irish Times. And she said, oh, Nancy, everybody here is talking about this harp. It's all over the news. It's on the radio, TV, everybody, <laughs> everybody, you know, it's like, why was that harp, mm. you know, thrown in the dumpster, you know? So it's just amazing that when you start something, you just never know what's going to come to you, what experiences, what people mm. you will get to know along the way, which has been just invaluable to me in my journey with the harp. The other day, it dawned on me that that's a big part of my journey and why I love writing, researching, uh, finding out, you know, the, the stories of these harps, what actually happened, the thinking, the possible thinking of the harp maker and getting to know, you know, in a way, getting to know owners of these instruments and sharing what I learned. So fascinating. Um, I know you play so many different harps from different time periods. And I could you just share with the listeners the different the differences among the harps that you that you play? I'd love to. And also listeners, I'd like to invite you to to visit my website, harelharp.com. And right there on my homepage, there's lots of information there for you. If you scroll down, I've made sound clips of all the different historical harps I play. And you will get it. You will hear how incredibly different these harps sound. My own historical harp, the Egan harp, which is probably 1819, beautiful sound. The clarity of that instrument is just uh, out of this world. It's nothing like a modern instrument I've ever played. And I've talked to restorers of Egan harps who've really been inside these instruments. You know, what is it about it? You know, is it the, the stringing, uh, the construction? One of the things that you, your listeners may not know, Egan is Irish oak on the inside of his harps. Hmm. Now, I love that. It's not just interesting 
in terms of organology, but in, in terms of mythology, in terms of Irish symbolism, the Irish oak, um, that's one of their symbols. It's, it's their heritage, it's their culture. Uh, but that's what he had at hand. But there's something about, he had it, put it in the baseboards, he put it in on the portables, the support hmm. sections on the inside of the sound box are oak. Uh, you know, maybe that, maybe that's part of it. Hmm. Anyway, going to my uh, historical reproductions of instruments, my George Higgs Gothic medieval harp, hmm. it has a drier sound. which is what what they loved. Is that because uh, of the braise on it or or Well, no, that's that's different altogether. Oh, yeah, the okay. braise sound is fabulous too. Uh, these these little braise pins you can adjust to actually engage the string and buzz. Hmm. And that was the sound that they liked in like early renaissance, late renaissance, and it was similar to other instruments like um, sack butts, croom horns. It made the harp louder and it gave it a, a different timbre or texture so it could really cut through. Mm. But without the braise, uh, my Higgs harp, it's, it's just a gorgeous sound, you know, and tune in uh, Pythagorean tuning with fourths and fifths mm. and octaves are perfect. You can hear there's, there's no beats when you tune the string. It's just uh, this kind of smooth uh, sound mm. that comes across. For my Renaissance harps, I have a, a Campbell single row. Uh, Catherine Campbell, wonderful harp maker, friend of mine, uh, lives in Tacoma near Seattle. And that was really my second historical harp that I purchased. And this is her Boston model. Oh, so perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, the summer before we moved to Boston in two, 2000, she talked me into buying it. <laughs> she said, you're going to Boston, you need a Boston harp. <laughs> because it's a copy of a harp in the Boston collection, oh. Boston. And turns out, thank you, Catherine, it was a really smart move, a brilliant move. I've used my harp many times in the museum. I've recorded on it because the museum's harp is not playable. So this is an accurate replica uh, built from the plans that were made of the harp by John Coster. So the museum goers can, for gallery talks, they can see the original right there next to me and I'm playing it. They can see how it sounds. And that harp has a really big sound. I, I performed for years in a group called Renaissance. And uh, we, at times the lutenists, you know, would, would say to me, would you not play so loud? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's got a really big voice wow. uh, and sings out in the, um, the old churches where, and halls where many of our concerts were. And I, I also played that harp for Renaissance dances once a month. 
oh, where okay. you improvise. This was another thing. I, I, oh, I'm glad it, it occurred to me to say this. Many of your other podcasts, they've talked about improvising. That's what I love about early music. Mm. And of course, um, Celtic music too. Uh, but early music, so often when I, over the years, when I've performed with different ensembles, I don't have a heart part. Hmm. I might have a vocal score. I might have uh, the singer's line. I might have a consort score. And it's up to me to take two lines and turn it into a heart part or um, what I know from my research, from attending workshops, um, you know, go to Somerset workshops if you <laughs> want to play early music and you learn how to make a heart part, mm. how to improvise on the spot. They didn't call it improvise. That's just what they did for a thousand years. Mm. No, long, maybe longer than that even. That's what a good musician would do, would be with your instrument, with your heart, you would play what others weren't playing. Mm. You'd fit your heart part into what they're playing or you emphasize the chordal harmony. I love a challenge. Mm. I love to take chances. I would much rather do that than be handed an orchestra part. And I didn't really go that route, even though I have played in orchestras. That did not entice me at all. I wanted something where I, I had to work for it in a different way mm. to find out what what is the music about? What can I do with this heart part? And that's what I love about being an arranger mm. too. But then that takes me to my Reiner Tarot harp made for me in Germany, which is an arpadopia, two rows of strings. I soon found out I needed some more chromatics. Mm. On the single row, I just pinched the strings for chromatics. But when you're playing for concerts, when it's really fast, um, with other instruments, um, it's useful to have another row, hmm. which is what they did in Renaissance and Baroque times. They simply added more rows of strings, added a chromatic row. And I've loved uh, playing that harp, and I've recorded with it, with uh, Capella Clausura. It's opened things up for me. It has uh, that harp. It has a, a darker voice, a deeper voice. It resonates in a different way. Each of these harps are made for the music of the period. I'm interested in music from different periods and you can't just play, well, you can. Mm. You can play medieval music on a Celtic harp, but it sounds different sure, on a sure. medieval reproduction instrument. Then the next harp I bought was um, a Spanish arpadopia or a cross strung. Mm. So you have two rows of strings that cross in the middle and I love playing this harp. And again, it sounds different because you play the treble way up high near the neck mm. and you play the bass down low near the sound box because you can't play in the middle like you're supposed to right, right. because that's where the strings cross. And that totally fits the character, the style mm. of Spanish harp music which incidentally was some of the first music that was really written for a gut-strung harp hmm. came out of Spain. Um, and so, and I've always loved, even when I was playing pedal harp music in the early days, I 
played Spanish harp music arranged for pedal harp because I was drawn to that style. So uh, I just love the the style of it. Can I ask about the the cross strung of of the strings? It's different than a double strung where you have this like two rows of the same strings. Okay, so what you do, you you have to retune your accidentals, but. The, the really great thing is you can play that F sharp in either hand. You can voice your chords in lots of different ways. Hmm. Um, you, you can put it um, in a treble chord or a, or a bass chord or can go and you can dip into the strings hmm. like you do on the uh, Arpadopia on my Renaissance double row, I can dip into the strings and play chromatic string, okay. as well as voicing it from like a bass note chord and putting the chromatic in on in my thumb hmm. in the treble range. So it takes a bit of figuring out, you know, when you get you get hold of Spanish music and you can get hold of it. Um, original sources in modern notation. Hmm. It's out there now. And you can play it as it was played and fill it in hmm. with improvising, which is just the most fun in the world. And I remember when I first started, I think it was Sue Richards who actually got me improvising <laughs> from the start. I used to run the uh, Texas Scottish harp tent at the Texas Scottish Harp Festival. Um, and she was uh, one of the judges that came to Texas and we got to be great friends. And she pulled me out of that straight jacket of the notes on the page. Yeah, thank you, Sue. And <laughs> I just never looked back. <laughs> I think it's tough for a classically trained musicians to to improvise. I think it's Mm -hmm. terrifying in a lot of ways but Bach and 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 Chopin and Mozart and they all improvised but it's just not yes. something that's uh, you know when you take the music away even though you might have it memorized you know sometimes it's it's a panic that you just need the page but it is a challenge to get off that page and and just be free to to really get into the music and a good accompanist can feel the music and and add to right. it so and, and I love I love what what you mentioned in uh, one of your podcasts and listeners go to her page Thank and you. just stay there all day. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. And you will, you know, all you need to know about playing the harp <laughs> and people and experience it's all there. Uh, but you. one thing that you um, said that really resonated with me was it's good to have both. It's good to be able to read music. You know, it depends on what kind of music you're doing. But for me, not only do I really love all the, the music, the different styles and genres of music from medieval to Bruno Mars, uh, big band jazz. I love those tunes because I can, I can sight read and I can improvise. I'm really good at courting. I know, I just know 
I can go to a chord instantly. Hmm. So I can just, you know, whether it's a session, oh, what, what key, you know, I can chord, you know, you can do one, four, five at least. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> or if it's a pop song, I can fill in the chords. Hmm. If it's medieval, it, it doesn't matter really what style you want to play. Um, you have to know that. Hmm. You have to know some kind of, you know, it's not, I guess you could, would you call it music theory? Knowing the harmonic I don't think you need rhythm. to know music theory to to, to just play chords. it. You just have to know what chords are yeah, I don't, happening. Yeah, you don't and, need to know it's a, you know, one, four, five progression or I, I, I mean, I don't. Just know the sound of it. Yeah, because there's plenty. Off the page. Right. There's plenty of musicians Dude. who can't read music who can harmonize and arrange. Yes. And, so. Yes. And, and if you want to learn music quickly, uh, you have to do that. You can't, um, you can't just learn a lot of, you know, buy a lot of beginner heart books and work your way through them. I mean, that's good too, mm -hmm. but not just that, that you, you will be depriving yourself of really being a musician mm. with a capital N yes. because that's, that's what it is. What I was Dominique Dodge and she was saying sometimes when she'll get on stage, um, if she gets nervous, she'll think about all of the musicians who came before her and all of the teachers yes. that taught her and, and that whole like lineage back and, and how it got to her and where she's sitting with this repository of knowledge that, you yes, know, that, that is the soundscape that, that is going back to creating a soundscape. And, uh, you, you just reminded me of, of another experience I had that was just like that, where I thought of uh, the people who went, who came before me. Um, one of the opportunities that I had was to play at the MFA for a gala dinner mm. in the Spanish art gallery. Wow. This incredible gallery with Zerberon paintings, Velasquez, uh, El Greco, you know, these paintings that I, you know, every time I, I'm there, I walk through that gallery just to look at those paintings because I'm interested in Spanish heart music from that period. So my agent called and said, oh yeah, the MFA, they want you to play for this big gala dinner in the Spanish gallery. And I said, does it matter what, which harp I bring? Oh, no, whatever, you know, we trust you. So I was like, right, I'm going to do this on my Spanish cross strung reproduction of the period. So I can play wow. this music next to the paintings that were made at, in, at the time period. Wow. And so, and I, you know, I um, amplified it and I figured out a mic that would work and everything and was, you know, excited um, that I was gonna, going to get to do this. Um, I didn't really know much about it. I knew it was very high profile, formal dinner. Uh, I knew that Ted Kennedy was going to be there. You know, this was a few years ago. 
and you know some other VIPs. Um, and the ambassador from Spain was going to be there. Mm. And so anyway, I got all set up, and I am sitting there playing this music as guests. They're promenading mm. in these magnificent long tables with huge floral arrangements, candlelight, just as I had imagined Spanish banquets in the castle. I'm already channeling uh, this Spanish Renaissance. This is the music. This is what they would have heard. And in walks Princess Christina of Spain. Wow. And her husband, I didn't even know they were going to be there. And they, the royalty, and they are walking past me as I'm playing one of these pavons mm. that was played for royalty wow. as the pavon, the dance, where you show off your finery mm. as you enter the, the space. And she turned and looked at me and smiled at me. Mm. And at the and, and I was thinking of the harp players in Spain who came before me mm. and played that piece for Spanish royalty. Wow. And at the end, you know, I played, that was the total repertoire. She knew that music. Wow. Because at the end, when she was going out, I was not exactly on the way out. She made, took an effort and came over and walked up to me and said, thank you. Thank you. Exquisite, exquisite, magnificent, Aww. something like that. You know, she she knew what I was doing. Wow. She, you know, she would know that. And that was just such a thrill on many levels. Mm -hmm. You know, it's nice to be appreciated. It's 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 a thrill to to be asked to play in that setting. It's it's personally gratifying to have a connection with harpists in Spain, mm. the royal harpists at court yeah. who played that same music for yeah. their royalty uh, in their time. That's amazing. <laughs> and to be surrounded by all that artwork and... Yes. Oh. Yeah, I I don't know. I've been really lucky. <laughs> Thank you, um, Nancy, so much for being here with me today. And you're just... just your love and passion for for music and and the harp and recreating history and time travel and this magic is just so wonderful and inspiring so thank you oh it's been a fabulous opportunity uh, you know a real treat for you to invite me oh. and i can say back at you um for all that you're doing oh, for you. somerset and for your students and uh for this website just to uh, preserve so much of of the culture of harping of what we're doing together um, it's a beautiful thing ah oh, thank you so much that really means a lot to me thanks for listening to moon over the trees music and theater productions podcast dive into the show notes at moonoverthetrees.com and if you enjoyed the show please share it with a friend and subscribe to the podcast <laughs>